<clears throat> Let's plow through. Rain or sleet. Hey, this is Jeff Benjamin with The Investment News Podcast. I'm here today with a couple of my colleagues, Bruce Kelly and Mark Sheff in Washington, D.C. Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm great, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, Mark, how are things there? And welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here again. Uh, the the Both the weather and the political temperature are hot in Washington. Excellent. Good to hear. Great little analogy there. Uh, that's the kind of stuff we expect you to bring to the table today. Uh, and Bruce, what did we got going on today? I know we got a lot of stuff to talk about. We got a, a few, uh, I think, pretty interesting topics. We're going to give a little more color to investors on that GPB private placement fiasco that we've been talking about um, and I've been writing about for more than two years. Mm -hmm. It seems to be coming home to roost for advisors a little bit. We're going to get some background from our special guest and good friend Mark Sheff Jr. here about the ins and outs of accredited investor rule and what that means for investment advisors, of course. But first, we're going to kick it off with a discussion of the two weeks of uh, political conventions uh, that we've uh, had last week, the Democrats this week, the Republican conventions. And if there's anything there that advisors really need to pay attention to when it comes to issues that might impact their clients. Recently, just the past few days, there's been discussion about Social Security and how proposals by President Trump might affect people's Social Security in the future, Social Security being one of the cornerstones of a financial plan. Mm -hmm. That's really important to talk about. So, Mark, you're you're an old Indiana political watcher, um, and you worked for Dick Durbin, I believe it was. No, I, I worked for, for Dick Luger. Of, uh, for Dick the late, Luger, excuse me. The late Richard Luger, a senator from the, Indiana. The late Senator yeah. Luger, right. So you're an old political hand. Right, exactly. You worked as a PR representative for him, right? Well, I was Luger's press secretary in the mid-90s. Uh, at the time, he ran for president, as a matter of fact. Right. He ran in the Republican primary in 1996. So you're you're one of these Washington insiders that people like to complain about, I guess, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it sure sounds like it, Jeffy. <laughs> there's a lot of good uh, in the world being done by Washington insiders. The whole swamp analogy really is not fair to the vast majority of, of the federal workforce and, and the Capitol Hill workforce. Right. I agree. Most people who come to Washington really do want to be here to do the right thing, at least what they think is the right thing. And um, uh, it, it's a lot less nefarious than what it's made out to be. I can never picture Mark Sheff being part of the swamp. You know, <laughs> you're much more part of the uh, <laughs> part of something else, you know, part of the solution, not part of the problem. That's for sure. So getting to these the political conventions and the platforms and Social Security, what was just your general impression as as a guy who, you know, is steeped in this stuff? What was you what was your impression and what should advisors be um, looking out for? What's clear after nearly two weeks of conventions, and we are taping a few hours before President Trump gives his acceptance speech at the White House as part of the Republican convention, what is clear is this election revolves around a couple of things. Number one, what do you think of President Trump? 
Number two, are you going to vote? And number three, is your vote going to count? It really comes down to that. The both parties have made clear that this election is a referendum on Donald Trump. You're either for him or against him. His, his personality lends itself to that. He's made the Republican Party all about himself. Uh, the presidency is all about Donald Trump. And this election is all about Donald Trump. Well, now, Mark, I, I know we're going to talk about financial services here, but on what you just said, are you suggesting that the Democrats could have put just about anyone up there and it still would have been just about Donald Trump? No, no, because when you offer the al- the alternative to him, it is a referendum on Trump, but the 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 alternative has to be one that that is not rejected by a broad swath of America. And in Joe Biden, the, the Democrats have, have chosen someone who, despite the caricatures of him that we're hearing this week at the Republican convention, is closer to the middle than just about any other Democrat who ran this year. The, the reason the, the Democrats are, are portraying Biden as being a, a vessel of the radical left is that he is not on the far left himself. That, that's a very important point and one that the Republicans have to overcome. Well, that's why Democrats voted for Biden is because he is a centrist, essentially. He's certainly more comfortable for, for many Democrats and, and I would think for many independents than several of the other Democrats, most of the other Democrats who ran this year if the Republicans were running against an actual socialist like Bernie Sanders, right. this would be a very different election. Right. Instead, they drew Biden, and it's going to be a close election. And what we've so, seen so – go ahead. Well, what I'm saying is, is so with Biden, that's really what we want you to handicap for us, Mark. Where, what does this look like from the financial services industry with a Biden presidency or with another a second term for, right. for Trump? There's been very little said at the conventions, of course, that directly applies to the investment advice space that the three of us cover. However, there are some subtle things that have happened that give us a clue. The first one is that in the Democratic platform, the Democrats actually did mention investment advice. Now, platforms are unwieldy documents that are um, not binding by any means, but they do tell us where a, a party's collective head is. And this is a line from the Democratic platform. Quote, Democrats believe that when workers are saving for retirement, the financial advisors they consult should be legally obligated to put their clients' best interests first. The platform states, we will take immediate action, the platform says, to reverse the Trump administration's regulations allowing financial advisors to prioritize their self-interest over their clients' financial well-being. Uh That's in the Democratic platform. Now, of course, (laughs) Joe Biden, neither Joe Biden nor any of the other Democrats actually got so far down into the weeds as to mention financial advice during the the convention. But that is a, a, a statement in the Democratic platform and something that is is worth noting. Now, the here, no, here comes in, fiduciary rule, DOL fiduciary rule 2.0, my friend. Well, right? I'll get that. I'll get to that in just a moment. I mean, that's what that to me. That's what that means. Well, sure. I, if Joe Biden kiss wins, reg bi, bi goodbye and say hello to to zombie fiduciary. Not necessarily. Okay. What's important is 
is said a lot in Washington. Perhaps it's a cliche, but it's also true. Personnel is policy. A lot will depend on whom Joe Biden taps to chair the SEC. There have been Democratic presidents who've chosen SEC chairs who have not been fiduciary enthusiasts, who have been sort of uh, dragged into that fight somewhat reluctantly and therefore didn't get a rule out. Jay Clayton uh, did get a rule out, although it's a rule with regulation best interest that has taken a lot of hits from investor advocates. So it really will depend on who Biden appoints as SEC chair. And so far, I've not heard any speculation no. about who that no, might it's be. No, way too early. But, but look to. at who it is and see whether he or she is coming directly from Wall Street or is likely to go go to Wall Street after an, at an, an administration appointment. So what's interesting here is Elizabeth Warren is not on the ticket, but how influential will she be on some Biden appointments? And the, and the one to watch is, is, is Elizabeth Warren going to have influence over the choice of the SEC chair? If she does, then yes, look for fireworks in terms of revisiting regulation best interest. And I think no matter who he appoints as labor secretary, the DOL is almost certain to circle back to the fiduciary proposal that's been put out by the Trump administration just in the last few weeks. With uh, Trump, you're also looking at personnel because the Republicans have, didn't even put out a, a platform. They have a uh, what they've offered is a, a, a list of bullet points, about 50 items long that are just very high level notional ideas about what a second uh, Trump administration may look at. And really the only one Anything that, there for financial services and in the bullet point? Not, not really. A cut, presentation? Cut taxes to boost take-home pay and keep jobs in America. Maybe that one. Enact <laughs> fair trade deals that protect American jobs. Come on. Made in America tax credits. Expand opportunity zones. That probably comes the closest to affecting our readers. Sounds like my 13-year-old son's term paper. Right. So, so with, so, but. What kind of platform is that? But, man? you know, that Jeez. fits the Trump approach to the presidency because the True. presidency is basically whatever Donald Trump defines it to be. Right. So, again, you're looking at personnel. At that given moment. At that given at moment. At that given time, because in 24 hours or 72 hours, it could be something completely different. Right. So the question is, who does he appoint? In his, right. If he gets a second term, in his second term as chair of the SEC. With Jay Clayton, he has found someone who is a, a pretty fiercely anti-regulation uh, uh, regulator. Right. And, and, and Jay Clayton has been willing to push deregulatory items through the SEC agenda with split votes. He is not afraid to take... Uh, three one or three two votes with Democrats opposing on uh, items such as reg regulation best interest and what we just saw yesterday the the reform of the accredited investor standard. So in the second term, and and Jay Clayton will almost certainly leave at the end of Trump's first term, even if Trump wins. Who does Trump appoint as SEC chair? Is it someone who is as fiercely anti-regulation as as Jay Clayton? And that will be the case if he elevates Hester Peirce, who right now is an SEC Republican member, 
or is he going to choose someone else who might be more toward the middle on on deregulation? Why are you certain that that Clayton leaves after uh, even I, if Trump is reelected? He sent so many signals. Uh, the, the primary one being his uh, effort to put himself in the mix uh, to be the next U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Mm-hmm. That's a job that Clayton apparently sees as the next stepping stone on on his career path. And um, he wants to, from what I've read and understand, wants to get back to New York where his family uh, is. And um, I just have a hard time believing he'll fill out a full five-year term. Most SEC chairs don't. In fact, in the 10 years that I've covered the SEC, I don't think any of them have served all five years. Uh, Anything else that came out uh, that you saw in the conventions? related to financial services or the markets. And and then I'd like to just get your general take on, because you I don't know anyone that's watched as much of the conventions as you have, and they were clearly different this time by being virtual. Well, on Joe Biden, he's being portrayed as by the Republicans as someone who gave ominous warnings about, about darkness and destruction in a second uh, Trump presidential term. And that's right. He did use the light and darkness trope in his speech. But the speech really came from a a much more positive place than Republicans are giving him him credit for. He didn't get too far into policy, but what he did say that struck me uh, had to do with, with taxes. He said he doesn't want to tax work more than wealth, and that the wealthy and corporations have to pay their fair of, of, of ta- uh, their fair share of taxes. He doesn't want to punish anyone, but he doesn't want anyone to get away with less than they owe. A very different approach to taxation than you hear from, say, Bernie Trump or Elizabeth Warren, who are talking about he- he- hefty wealth taxes. Bernie Sanders, our, you mean, not Bernie yeah, Trump. Yeah, you said uh, Bernie, Bernie Trump. Uh, yeah, I don't, Bernie, I don't think that would sorry. be a good marriage right there. <laughs> Bernie oh, Sanders. Boy. Imagine those actually, two at Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. There was actually a, a Capitol Hill aide, I believe, back when I was on the Hill, who, who was named Bernie Trump. Anyway, um, <laughs> Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both uh, ha- proposed hefty wealth taxes. Yeah, the, the big wealth and, tax, right? One percent exactly. a year or and, whatever and that, it is on your, made, on your wealth over 10 million bucks or 20 million, whatever. They just introduced that right. in California, a wealth tax. But but that's not that's that's not where where Joe Biden is according to his mm-hmm. acceptance speech and I and I and that's that's important to keep in mind. He certainly wants Sanders and and um, Warren's support, but he's not completely embracing their agendas. And again, that's why Biden is closer to the middle than any other Democratic presidential uh, serious Democratic presidential candidate this year, and why he'll be a formidable opponent for Trump. And then with Trump, I guess what we should listen for tonight is is whether he really does have a any kind of policy agenda that he promotes uh, tonight. I, I suppose Vice President Pence did to a certain extent last night on his on his behalf, but um, is is he going to talk about cutting taxes and and uh, uh, cutting reg- regulations? Well, he Is loves he both to... those things, right? He loves so his big accomplishment. Right. One of his big accomplishments, right, in the first his first term, was that big tax cut that reduced the corporate tax rate substantially. Right. 
and taxes for everybody, but for that it had a bigger impact on wealthy people. And uh, he loves to cut taxes and he loves to deregulate. So right. I would assume that he's going to talk about those two things. Uh, perhaps and he might also bring up his, his executive order on the payroll tax. Right. He wants to eliminate the payroll tax. His executive order, order didn't get rid of it. But it is a, a flashpoint between Trump and Biden. Biden, in his acceptance speech, uh, said that eliminating the payroll tax would um, threaten, would destroy Social Security and Medicare. Destroy is my words, word, but that's the impression he gave. And he pledged to protect Social Security and Med- Medicare. So listen, maybe for Trump to talk a little bit about payroll taxes, but probably his speech tonight is going to I be think the Social Security all about social and cultural the, issues. The Social Security Administration came out and said, if that occurs in two or three years, you know, there's not going to be enough money there to pay people's current benefits, right? I bet, yes, I believe they said something like that. I don't recall off the top of my head exactly right. exactly when. But um, but likely what we're going to hear from Trump not only tonight but but on the campaign trail is a, a focus on social social and cultural issues and uh, his his effort to stoke up his base. And and given the way that the electoral college works. He could win just with his base. That's what people have to keep in mind. Well, he did last time. Well, exactly. And he could very well do that again. He could do it again. Hey, Mark, uh, what did you th- – I know you're a, you're a political wonk. Uh, I know you don't like to be called an insider because that has <laughs> negative connotations, but you clearly are. Um, uh, what, what did you think of the conventions themselves? I mean, you know, the, a lot of the big conferences that we used to go to in person are now these virtual kind of multi-webcast kind of things. If you can just quickly uh, hit some highs and lows of the of the efforts by the Republican convention and the Democratic conventions. What I liked about the virtual conventions is that it allowed the viewer to really concentrate on what's being said because you didn't have the camera cut away to crowd shots, to delegates wearing funny hats, to uh, uh, delegates blowing horns and and so on. You could really zero in on, on what was said and how it was said. So, so I like that. The drawback, though, is that the fun of the convention is to see how people are reacting and to get a sense of the enthusiasm in the arena mm-hmm. for, for various speakers. So you lose the – you can be more analytical about what's being said, but it's certainly not as much fun watching and hearing it. I thought uh, both parties did pretty well, given the radical change to the format this year. Mm-hmm. It's something neither party has had to deal with ever in the television age. And I thought they both uh, responded pretty well. But I'll tell you, the state roll call of, of um, votes the, that the Democrats pulled off was a whole lot more interesting than, than what, what the Republicans did. And I'm not just talking about the Calamari in Rhode Island. I believe that's where it was. But, but just the, um, the idea that you're getting out state by state, getting, getting outside of the convention virtual bubble made it, I thought, pretty compelling television. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the Republicans have done well with the background, the setting. I, 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 I thought the, the Andrew Mellon Auditorium, which was used for many speakers this week, as well as uh, Fort McHenry for Pence's speech last night, 
uh, were both very good. Now, of course, you have questions about whether it's even legal for Trump to use the White House tonight as his backdrop, whether it was legal for Melanie, uh, Melania Trump to use the Rose Garden as her backdrop. But nonetheless, I guess that's the power of the incumbency. And those settings are a lot more compelling and powerful than the, um, the auditorium that Joe Biden was in in, in Delaware. Okay, Mark, thanks for that uh, insight on into the uh, conventions. Good stuff. A lot of stuff to think about there. Um, I want to talk, also talk today about the accredited investor rule that was just passed by the SEC. And um, I guess that's kicking in in about 30 days, if I understand it correctly. Mark, can you give us a, a summary of what exactly that is and what it means to investors and financial advisors? Right, Jeff. What the SEC did was approve amendments to the accredited investor rule that expand the definition. Right now, an accredited investor has to meet certain net worth or income thresholds. And those are uh, the the investor has to have $1 million in assets outside of his or her home or make $200,000 or more annually. What the SEC did yesterday was add more qualifications for being a, a, a an accredited investor. So if you don't meet those financial thresholds, you can still invest in unregistered securities or, or private placements. Mm-hmm. If you have uh, specific uh, knowledge or expertise or experience. And uh, one of the qualifications is uh, having a securities license. And um, the SEC designated three licenses as uh, allowing someone to qualify as an accredited investor, Series 7, Series 65, and Series 82. But the agency said it could add more certifications, designations, or credentials in the future. So look for folks like the CFP board and the uh, CFA Institute to put bids in to make their designations qualify Mm -hmm. as accredited investors. So what the SEC is doing is, in a a modest way, expanding the pool of investors who are qualified to buy securities on the private market. And this is a, a longstanding goal of Chairman Jay Clayton's. It's a way uh, for him to start to realize his uh, strong interest in opening private markets to more ordinary investors. He believes that more Americans should have a shot at uh, putting their money into the next big company that takes off. He thinks that private securities are uh, uh, a good thing to have uh, in as an option in retirement accounts, for instance. So this is a, um, a, a longstanding effort of his, and there's a lot of pushback from investor advocates, from state regulators, and, uh, and others who say that the SEC doesn't understand private markets, doesn't understand the potential harm to investors, and is going, basically going off half-cocked. Sheffy, uh, uh, may I interrupt? Go, oh, sure. So, Jeff, this sounds like uh, what Mark just described. It makes me think that somehow you had a direct connection with the SEC somehow because you and I a few weeks ago (laughs) had this very conversation, right? 
So who's your inside man? And you're in favor. You're, <laughs> you were saying a few weeks ago that if you have an expertise, you know, if you're a professor or somebody like that, why shouldn't you be able to invest in these things? High risk private investments. And my response with private placements because of my reporting on them for 20 years has always been, wow, you, you really have to be careful with these things because they are high risk. They're very high commission. So the general allegation on the side of the um, investor advocates and the plaintiff's bar is that brokers love to sell these things to investors because they are high commission products and they can, you know, you can get a 10% commission, the maximum commission allowed by FINRA on these private placements, as opposed to a 3% commission selling a mutual fund or paying, you know, minimal commissions on, on ETFs now and the like. So, but who's, who's your inside guy at the SEC there? Professor, um, I don't have an inside guy at the SEC. I am just uh, <laughs> very insightful and I pay attention. But let me uh, kind of clarify or respond to some of the things that you said, Bruce. First of all, I don't know if I would characterize all private investments as high risk. Um, I would definitely wouldn't characterize them all as they say so right on the prospectus. Uh, let me finish. I don't know if I would character, characterize them all as as high uh, high commissions either, because uh, many of these things have a what they call a one in ten or two in twenty rule, where you pay two uh, percent of the assets and twenty percent of the performance. The ones that brokers sell to retail customers are high commission. Right. But what we're talking about here with private placements and and really much well beyond just private placements, private equity strategies, venture capital, these aren't all private placement products. And many of the private placement products that you're talking about, Bruce, are not even included in this because they're already available to retail investors. So you're talking about something that's already out there and available. And clearly people are taking, you know, some of the shadier people are taking advantage of it and the access available to make money off those. But what we're talking about is products that, that aren't yet available and it would be available to a, a broader market. And I really don't have a problem with that because we all know that risk is in the markets and there are a lot of things out there that are in the form of mutual funds and ETFs that can be just as high risk. And there can be things that happen that are just as corrupt. I mean, we write about this stuff every single day. So I think it's a good thing that there's wider access, but I think you should pay attention to whatever you're investing in. It's extremely dangerous. For some reason, it seems like Jake Clayton hasn't even bothered to think about private placements that have blown up and destroyed people's life savings of the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years when he talks about these things. And in his comments, there's no, to my memory, and please correct me, Mark, if I'm wrong, there's just no um, focus by the commission on the risk of these types of investments. And it's all about the benefit. The commission itself admits it is not certain of the risks, doesn't have data on the risks, and that's part of what is setting off critics. Isn't that a problem? Well, it, it, it's a problem because private markets are are opaque, they're huge, but yet very difficult to uh, follow. Uh, valuations, of course, are a, a constant challenge in the private market. You know, does a buyer have the information that she needs to understand whether she is paying a fair price for for a private 
security that she's buying. That's a, a, a question that many critics say the SEC has not answered. And also keep in mind that we're likely to see more revisions to the accredited investor definition. More categories are likely to be added. The SEC indicated in the in the rule that um, it would continue to listen to to other ideas. And one that has been floated by the Investment Advisor Association and the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives is the idea of making clients of investment advisors. Uh, accredited, essentially, or, or the way the the Investment Advisor Association puts it is, clients of fiduciary investment advisors should have access to private markets. Now, oh, that would be terrible. Investment advisors, of course, are split on this idea. <laughs> I wrote a story about this once, and I will likely pursue another one now that this rule has been uh, approved. A, a lot of investment advisors want nothing to do with being the gatekeeper to private markets for their clients. They right, don't want exactly. The liability, they don't want the stress. And they say, I mean, some of them admit, I can't price these securities any better than they can themselves. So that's being a fiduciary. Right, but- If you can't price something, isn't that part exactly. of being a fiduciary? To me, that's, that's you're right, Bruce, that's that's their job. They're putting that on the, the, the regulators are saying, you, know, you guys can do this if you want to roll up your sleeves and do the work and figure out what these things are. To me, advisors that say they want nothing to do with it, that should be the end of it. They can have nothing to do with it. If clients come to an advisor and say, I want to invest in this private equity strategy, the advisor says, I don't know anything about it or I don't want to know anything about it, then the advisor can go somewhere else. I don't have a problem with advisors with all these accreditations that they're always bragging to us about being considered qualified to do research and allocate clients into these strategies. That to me seems like the job of a financial advisor. I, I prefer that over just some regular Joe going in there saying, hey, here's my life savings, put it into this private equity fund. Well, it's, it's interesting that we're, we're talking about expanding the accredited investor rule when our next topic is about investors who bought private placements in a opaque company and paid huge commissions to do so are now suing investment advisors because the private placements, specifically those issued by GPB Capital, have failed to perform. So as you and I have talked about previously, there's a $2 billion mess out there. It's called GPB Capital. This was sold in a mad rush by about 60 broker dealers from 2014 to 2017, 2018. They raised $1.8 billion from investors. People were paying 7 to 10% commission, the maximum under industry rules for these things. And um, the strategy was to invest steady returns uh, for investors by buying auto dealerships and trash hauling businesses. And uh, in most of these, there's about half a dozen of these pr different types of private investments. There's been no distribution to investors for two years. There's been no accurate accounting of these things for two or three years. Mm -hmm. It's a mess. And then prior to recently, it's been a mess for a GPB. They've been sued in court by investors. But now what I wrote about this week is that an advisor, a gentleman named Luke Johnson, 
who used to be with a broker dealer called Coastal Equities, and he's now not a FINRA broker anymore. He's an RIA. He's has about a dozen investor complaints alleging that these investments were unsuitable um, and suing and the damages that people are claiming are around three million bucks. Now, he's had uh, he's settled other suits, this Luke Johnson advisor. He had three other complaints alleging damages of around eight hundred thousand dollars. And those were settled. He contributed about one hundred and forty thousand dollars of his own money (laughs) to settle these claims for unsuitability. So unsuitable is the kind of the big claim that all clients and plaintiff's attorneys make. Right. Um, Yeah. uh, When it comes to these things, the suitability rule, which is a very porous kind of huge rule um, that you can really claim almost anything under. But the fact that he's already settled two of these claims um, and he's facing lots more. And once plaintiff's lawyers, you know, they get on Google and they start advertising and then they amass clients. Mm -hmm. The reason why I bring up Luke Johnson is because until now, it's been unusual. Uh, What's unusual about him and noteworthy is that he has several of these claims against him on his broker check report. It says private placements. But in a conversation I had with an attorney, it was specifically GPB, uh, he has a lot of complaints and other advisors we're looking at, they might only have one or two complaints. Mm-hmm. I suspect advisors who sold this stuff, this GPB stuff, to be tagged by these complaints down the road, you know, and it's just a huge mess. It's very, it's precarious. It's dangerous for the investor. It's dangerous for the advisor. It's dangerous for the, it's dangerous for the advisor's practice and the like. Again, we go back to what Mark was talking about before with these risks. There's tremendous risk in selling this type of investment as part of a financial plan. And I think you're seeing it right now with what's happening with GPP. Right. But to be fair, these private placements aren't part of the uh, new SEC rule. These are products that are available now. Well, your accreditation would change. You could sell it to more different types of investors, right? The intention of what Jay Clayton and the SEC wants to do is to, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, Mark, is to widen the investor base, give greater access to more people to buy these types of products, which, again, are high risk. Uh, It says right there on the prospectus, you know, in the boilerplate language. What's the minimum of these private placements? Do you know the minimum investment? It was they were sold in fifty and a hundred thousand dollar chunks, but when the and do you have to be high net worth to buy them? I think you have to be accredited. You know, it was supposed to be for your accredited clients. You know, mm-hmm. but going back, you know, ten fifteen years to um, scandals, billion two billion dollar scandals like MedCap, which was selling investments in medical receivables that wound up being phony. 10 or 15 years ago that Mm -hmm. dozens and dozens of broker dealers sold. I sat in the hearing room in Massachusetts in the Massachusetts security division. And it was uh, Massachusetts and Bill Galvin were suing securities America, a very large broker dealer. And uh, you know, it was pretty evident from the testimony from the witnesses and the advisors and the experts involved that some of these brokers, you know, they make up, uh, they can do a pretty nifty job making up your net worth to look like a million bucks. Oh, you got a house, you got a couple of cars, mm-hmm. somebody has a boat. Oh, you're a millionaire all of a sudden. And oh, I'll sell you 
a hundred grand worth of this uh, yep. GPB or something. <laughs> it, it just seems to me that the conversation should be on should include a healthy debate about risk and not just, oh, the private markets. This is the next Facebook or something. That's what I can envision a broker telling or an advisor telling a, a retiree, oh, this is just like Facebook. Get in on the private placement. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, all right. Hey, uh, how about we jump into the open notebook segment? Uh, Mark Sheffy has a, uh, a hot topic he wants to talk about today, something that uh, a lot What's of your re- beef, Mark? Yeah. <laughs> what do you got there, buddy? Okay, here's my beef, and this is something you guys deal with as well. We all talk to more than a dozen sources a week, and often we are connected to them through a call-in arrangement that their PR representative insists on setting up. I long for the days when you just simply called a source on her direct line. And I have many sources who I do call on their direct lines. And that's one of the reasons I go back on to their them. mobile phone, their cell phone or their the cell best, phone. And, and that's phone one of the reasons and, I yeah. go back to them again and again. My favorite source is the one where you dial the number and there he is. Oh, and they pick mm-hmm. it up and they say, oh, hello, Bruce, or hello, Mark. Right, exactly. Like now, if, if if it's a source I've not dealt with too often, I, I often, uh, the, the first time, have to go through a PR representative. And, and that PR representative invari- invariably wants to do a call-in. Why? Why does the PR rep want to do a call-in? So that the PR rep can listen in on the interview. That's the only reason. And record it too, probably, and, and right? I would imagine it. that these things are recorded. Right. All broker dealers it. have to record people's conversations, you know, so they have the ability to record Look, record every if, conversation. If, hey, I, I don't mind someone recording an on-the-record conversation. I might be recording it myself. I have nothing to hide. You can go ahead and keep that tape and compare it to the quotes I use in the story. You can do anything you want. But I don't believe that's that's why they're they're doing the call-in. They just want to hear hear what's going on, and, and it's all for the PR person. All that's needed for the journalism to be committed is for the source and the reporter to talk to one another. But we've all, we, we lately just have to always. Uh, the journalism. Well, you, you, but lately we always have to include <laughs> this, this third step. And I have been on tight deadlines uh, and had problems calling in. I've had uh, co- uh, phone bridges that require uh, the, the initial number and the password. Hold on. Now think yeah. about, you know, I, I, I was watching a documentary on HBO about Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill recently. If anyone right. is into New York journalism or, or tabloid yeah. journalism, they should really watch it. It's fantastic. It came out a couple of years ago. So I just stumbled across it and I couldn't, I, I had to watch it. And I think somebody, one of the taglines at the end was that, you know, in the eighties when Pete Hamill and Breslin were both at the daily news and investment news and cranes used to be at Daily News building on 42nd Street in New York, which is a gorgeous structure 20 odd years ago. There was 450 people, uh, reporters and editors working at the Daily News. And mm-hmm. today in, or, or in 2018, there were 45 putting out that publication. Right. So right. <laughs> my point being, how many more PR people are there now? PR and marketing people are there now. Uh, versus journalists 
over the past 10 or 20 years. There's there's fewer and fewer of us, it seems. Right. And more and more of them. Now, I just sound like a cranky old man, which is what I'm happening to me during the pandemic. I'm just ossifying up, in, up here in northern Manhattan, you know. Look. But this is the way of the world, man. There's less absolutely. of us and more of them. Look, I, I, I used to be on that side of the journalism ecosystem. I was a Capitol Hill press secretary. I was a spokesman for a think tank. I understand how it works. But um, the number one, you know how the, the first oath of a doctor is do no harm. The first oath of a PR professional should be don't make the reporter's life more difficult. Make it easier. And these phone bridge call-ins make our lives <laughs> Harder. Also, I agree. Oh, wait, I wait, agree. One other thing. Let me just get this on my chest. One other thing. After I talk to your client, if, if you are not on the phone bridge, do not send me an email asking how the conversation went, because I'm probably on deadline when you send that email. And yet I don't want to blow you off because after all, you did connect me to the source and I kind of feel obligated to get back to you. Don't ask me how the interview went. Ask your client how the interview went. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on that note, I think Mark is uh, is inching toward happy hour. Um, he's he's Let gotten that say, off his chest. I have he's, a lot uh, of friends. He, he's he's better for I, it. I, I have a lot of friends who are in PR, <laughs> and I respect the profession. I'm just saying, don't make the reporter's life harder. Oh, but and Jeff, you wanted to add something. I agree 100, percent Mark. But Jeff, you wanted to well, add something, right? Yeah. I, I just wanted to say that you know you're right, Mark. The the PR. Uh, machine is a mega industry out there and they charge a lot oh, of money to these companies to represent them Ooh. and they want to show yes. their worth by being on right. the phone call i mean i will tell you one company t row price has always been one of the few companies that you call there you call their pr people and you say hey i'd like to talk to this portfolio manager and they'll say here's his phone number to me that's that's, that's the best i mean that is old yeah. school man. i mean and and you know there are companies like that a lot of them with internal PR, but when they don't have internal PR, those PR people, they've got to show their worth. Right. They've got to say, I'm here with you. I'm listening right. to this call. Sometimes they interrupt, but it's the way of the world. It's part of what we deal with. And I will say this, I get a lot of good out of PR people too, because they, they definitely help me when I need absolutely, things. And, absolutely. You know, the good ones, the good ones are invaluable. No doubt about that. One other, just real quick thing. Uh, I, I am not a Washington insider, but... <laughs> <laughs> when I'm when I when I'm working on a story, I hope that Washington insiders return my calls. Uh, oh yeah, I'm sure they do, Mark, because you are an insider. They probably got you on speed dial. You and Dick Durbin. <laughs> that's a that's that's a that's a heady equation to run through there, Mister Chef. Good luck mm. with that. So I think that's it, guys. All right. All right. That was that was terrific. As everyone knows, this comes out on Monday, and uh, I just wanted to say thank you to our special guest, the always accommodating, ever charming, and brilliant Mark Chef. <laughs> thank you, Bruce. It was great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. I'm sure we're gonna have you on, dude. With what's going on. <laughs> As more bullet points are issued or whatever, we're going to have to have you come on and talk about Social Security if you can glean anything okay. into what's going on with Social Security regulation. So thank you again. You're welcome. I would also like to thank our producer, the tremendous Stephen Lamb. 
who was ducking a hurricane or something up there when, in, in Connecticut while he was producing this thing. And as everybody knows, you can find the Investment News Podcast at a variety of sites. Those include investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitchers. We always ask for a review or, or for some feedback. Uh, you can also ping us at our Twitter handles. Uh, Mark, what's your Twitter? It's just Mark Sheff, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-O-E-F-F, at, or that, that's it, at Mark Sheff. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, the Professor Benjamins is at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm Bruce Kelly. You can get me at BD News Guy, all on Twitter. Jeff and I are both off next week, so we're going to skip a pod. But we'll be back real soon and talking to you about the financial advice industry in September. Thanks very much. Thanks.